Mr. Brandon Munro, how are we, sir? I'm well, Matt. How are you? Very well. I'm, I'm just delighted that you let us win a game of cricket. Thank you very much uh, to you and the whole Australian nation. Um, we, better, we better talk about you. <laughs> I know you're going to win the series. It's embarrassing. Um, we can always hark back to the 70s where we played a little bit better. Right. We are going to talk uranium. We can talk nuclear. Uh, let's kind of kick off with, well, what's been happening in the world of uranium and nuclear? Well, there's action at the interesting, youthful, fun, funky, sexy end of this uh, sector, which is, of mm -hmm. course, small modular reactor designs. Yeah. So I'm really pleased to say that Oaklo will join NewScale and add a second SMR developer to the public space in the US. So Oaklo is uh, going public via the Sam Altman-backed SPAC uh, out C. And I'm going to say point, Sam Altman as in OpenAI, Sam Altman. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah that's the chat. So he's actually been involved with Oaklo since 2015, a angel investor in the technology and chairman since then. So it doesn't come as a surprise to people inside the industry. However, it certainly benefits the cause that his, most of the PR that we're seeing about this at the moment is leveraging off his name and his reputation and his, you know, very firm positioning in the fun, fresh, funky, young, sexy end of the world, which is technology. And in fact, Time magazine named him in the 2023 100 most influential individuals on the planet. So he's a big name in those areas. So first of all, it's good for the sector. It's great for Oclo. They'll get a half a billion dollars of cash that helps them move their technology forward. But it's also good for nuclear energy because this is a whole new audience. People are into open AI and technology and being influenced by Time magazine influencers and that type of thing. They get to hear all about the enormous moves forward that the nuclear power sector is making via small modular reactors in all their different applications. So very pleased with that news. It's, 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 definitely, it's definitely kind of um, good, good news. And I think what we also need to, um, in terms of awareness and also a chunk of money ch thrown in there, um, I'm um, intrigued just to see what valuations uh, look like. You know, we've, had, we've just come off the back of quite a few SPACs um, raising money and then falling over, you know, our own, very own Charmouth, um, I can't even pronounce it. Palihapitiya. We'll go with you know. He, you know, that caused a lot of damage in terms of value destruction, but also sort of slight distrust in some of these these big new launches. So this this needs to be different from that perspective. But I think good news on the um, on, on the fact that SMRs will be much talked about over the next few months and probably timing it rather nice nicely as well. I, I suspect. Um, yeah, that's, what a, that's right. And. Just on valuation, from what I understand, the technology in the company is being valued at about three hundred and fifty million. The existing okay, it's not, not crazy. about five hundred million. Mm -hmm. So uh, it doesn't seem on any level to be a greedy valuation, and so it gives it an opportunity. I think when it does hit the boards, to find uh, find a level that values the technology. So that will be interesting to see how it comes on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of um, trying to understand the, the, you know, in terms of the, 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 the business model going on and how do they, you know, dri drive that valuation and on, and on what basis? Because I say, like, typically these things come out of the gate way too high, way overvalued and need to backfill very quickly, which they've been unable to do 
I'm talking about other verticals, not not SMRs, obviously. Um, NLC, um, Urenco, the bit of news out from them. Yeah, so we're seeing the first of the very important steps that the West needs to take in expanding its enrichment capacity. So Urenco, which is the joint venture between the UK, Netherlands, and believe it or not, German governments, that dates back to when Germany was a uh, nuclear energy state, uh, they have ex agreed and announced that they will expand their capacity in their US New Mexico facility. They're expanding that by about 15%. And that, of course, is the headline number that's getting the attention right now. To put that in a little bit of context, it's 700,000 SWU. So SWU is the way that you measure the service of enrichment. It means separative work unit. So, but don't worry too much about that, everyone out there. What it really means is 700,000 SWU, that's about 15% increase in their New Mexico facility, but that needs to be looked at in the context of Urenco's global capacity of about almost 18 million SWU and uh, the West's total capacity of about um, 40 million SWU in total. Now, from an expansion point of view, what really needs to occur is to backfill the gap that's going to be left as Western utilities realise, regardless of sanctions, it'll be unacceptable to buy Russian SWU for a long time. The West needs to increase their capacity, we believe, by between 5 and 10 million SWU. So this increase of, say, 4% of Urenco's global capacity goes some way, but still less than 5% of what the West is going to need to do. So definitely a step in the right direction. And uh, Urenco has made it clear that it was able to do that because of contracts signed by utilities. And obviously the what's written between those lines is that there's going to need to be a lot more contracting before they can start open up their very substantial facilities that they've got, for example, at Almelo in the Netherlands and Granov in Germany. Step in the right direction. Right. Step in the right direction, not quite enough. Um, and I guess the, 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 the obvious question here is, where's the balance going to come from? Yurenko, <clears throat> obviously doing as much as they can. Who else is going to need to kind of step into the fray, you know, given the, the fact that there will be Russian sanctions for some time to come? You know, we, we've shot ourselves in the foot um, th there in terms of um, lack of planning over the past couple of decades. Russia controls or has controlled a large section of that, that enriched uranium supply into the market. So who else can step up here with whether they have commitments or not, whether they have government backing or not? It's going to take some time. So where are we looking to? It, it will take some time. And if we go back a couple of weeks, we went into that on this show. Uh, so the total Western SWU, I think I might have said 40 million SWU before, but it's, it's 28 million SWU. Um, and that needs to increase to at least five, more like 10 million SWU, and that requires an increase in conversion at the same time. So the things go together. We can refer people to the show when we talked about that in detail. Right, will okay. From time and investment and commitments by both utilities and regulators and the major enrichment service providers. Right, okay, and a, and a little bit of news, kind of closer to home for you anyway, uh, before we kind of get into winners and bungles and uh, and other of the week. Um, 
Rossing, uranium mine in Namibia, which you know very, very well. Um, looks like they're going to switch from owner operator to to perhaps something else, contract mining. Yeah, that's right. Why? So, why? Well, there's a couple of good reasons for it. So, for everyone out there, Rossing uranium mine was constructed by Rio Tinto all the way back in 1976. It's got a lot of similarities with Bannerman's Atango project that we're developing. So, for example, in 1976, they foresaw a 16-year mine life. Uh, it's still in production 45 years later, and they have very recently uh, made the final investment decision to expand that life from 2026 to 2036. So we would expect that with the resource base that we've got at Atango, that we will also be a multi-decade uh, mine, notwithstanding that our initial definitive feasibility study anticipates only a 15-year initial mine life. Now, what they've done is uh, Rossing has made the decision to move from the owner mining model to the contract mining model. Um, they've done this presumably for reasons of efficiency. It is causing some uh, headlines in Namibia because they will need to ultimately lay off about 400 employees in their mining division. Now, bear in mind that many of those uh, will probably just simply move to the contractor and Rossing are offering some fairly lucrative severance packages. It's good for the new developers coming along, us in particular. You know, we'd expect that that creates a nice available pool of capital. We won't need anything like as many as 400 mining uh, operators to work for the contractors that we're planning on using for our mining when we're once we've constructed and in operation. Um, to your question about why use contract mining, um, what Rossing has said, and this is valid, is that the as they go deeper into the pit, they're going to need to upgrade their equipment, their plant and equipment. So if you use a contract mining, particularly a Chinese group, which is what they've decided to go with, uh, they will have access to perhaps better financing terms on which they can acquire the new kit, uh, the new machinery. And uh, it also enables a company to um, achieve, generally speaking, better efficiencies than a, a workforce that's been there for an awful long time and become rather entrenched. Uh, in our case with the Tango, it made a lot of sense for us to go to contract mining because it reduced the capital cost. We don't need to buy all of that equipment. We just sign a contract. and. The, the scale that uh, we'll be initially mining at a Tango is significantly smaller than what Rossing's doing, meaning it's smaller trucks, smaller shovels. There's a great availability of both experience and equipment at that scale in Southern Africa. Uh, and because of that experience, we've, we've received very competitive bids in the RFQ process. Okay. Talk, talk to me about contracting. Because my, my days back in banking and, and um bouncing around Africa, you know, 20 different countries in Africa, you used to see a lot of kind of ch Chinese operators there, um, you know, and, and their contract staff kind of flying in and, you know, setting up camps. And I, I guess the kind of standards were perhaps not quite as, as good as they are today or good as they need to be today. So how do you, how does the government, we'll, we'll talk about Namibia specifically here, but it, it applies to other countries in, in Africa where we've got Chinese contractors in place, where how do you kind of ensure a certain um, standard um, that meets your criteria, which meets any kind of health and safety criteria, ESG criteria, and, and um, you know, regulated um, uh, regulation from the government? 
how do you ensure that that is the case and these you know you're not sort of seeing these sort of Chinese contractors coming in and being tr treated badly or you know not to the standards that you would expect yeah it's it's a really interesting discussion so um first of all put the um, nationality slash experience set of the contractor to one side there's a large number of mechanisms that you can utilize in a mining contract to ensure that you are incentivize the right sort of behavior and the right results you need a strong owners team to be able to do that because uh, it's the old adage show me the incentive and I'll show you the result if you don't have the right level of experience then what can happen is you don't identify the incentives that need to be implanted. And that's both carrots and sticks. So we're fortunate because Werner Ewald, who you've met in country, he was the mining manager at Rossing for many years immediately before joining us. So he's an expert in mining uranium, but also Gavin Chamberlain, who you've also met, Matt, um, who's our chief operating officer. He actually worked for one of the largest contractors in Southern Africa, um, before he worked for Wood a few years ago, um, when before he built the Husab uranium mine just down the road. So for us, we kind of take it for granted that we've got that expertise, because we do, but it's not always the case in all companies. So that's what you do, that's your kind of contract mining management 101, 201, 301 type analysis. And then if you turn to your question, which is directed at the fact that this is a Chinese contractor, what I would say to that is the difference between Chinese contractors today and Chinese contractors, say 15 or 20 years ago, is vast uh, because they've become immeasurably more experienced. So they will understand safety as well as a Western mining contractor, if they're incentivized in the right way. They'll understand efficiency, at least as well as local contractors. Um, they generally have very high work ethics because you know that, that's how they're geared. Um, so the risks only really come from language barriers and cultural barriers in managing that. Now, I'm not saying that you don't get a large diversity of Chinese mining contractors in Africa. Of course you do. You get everything like in the West, you get everything from um, high-end, very effective contractors who exhibit all of the qualities I've just talked about through to scallywags. But that's certainly not a unique Chinese phenomenon. The other thing is that you tend to get very favorable financing and capital availability for Chinese contractors that sometimes ends up rubbing local communities and local governments the wrong way. So the examples are, if you bring the people and the materials in from China, then they can use their Chinese financing structures to make it very cheap. And some of the things that upsets local communities is when you've got road building taking place from Chinese contractors, they bring in all of their food by container rather than buying the local food. They tend to employ local Chinese. That, for a uh, for an unskilled environment like road building, if they're bringing in Chinese labour, that understandably makes Africans, uh, you know, Africans who are unskilled themselves, who don't have jobs, very upset. We don't see that in a high-skilled environment like uranium mining. Um, there might be a few Chinese people who are in there in the management, but it's not about bringing in Chinese people to do the cheap 
stuff and excluding the local um, Namibians. Yeah. They tend to have <clears> which, is, which is what it used to, which is what it was back back in my day. That that's what happened a lot, and it kind of was it kind of stuck in the throat a, a, a little bit. Um, plus, you know, I, I think. Like you say, standards have changed um, as well um, from from the Chinese groups. So I think people shouldn't be concerned um, these days. Um, it's, yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Obviously, there's going to be a bit kind of uh, potentially a lot of kind of skilled labour available to you and and, and you know other projects um, in the in Namibia, which which is good news. Um, but you're gonna you guys are gonna need a lot more because um, there's a lot there's a lot happening in country. Namibia is quite busy as far as uranium is concerned, quite important, I think, potentially to the future of the um, nuclear sector. Um, and we're going to talk about the uh, sort of ge ge geopolitics a little bit, of course, but also some of the geographies as well. We're going to talk about, you know, Canada's role in, in this, I think, later on, if, if you don't mind. But let's jump to um, our, our kind of new format, which we which we started trying, seems, seems to be working. So we're going to stick with it until people tell us not to, which is... Brandon, our winner of this week is who? Well, winner of the week is Lotus Resources. They just this morning announced a merger with ACAP Resources. So for people new to the sector, Lotus, they're both ASX listed companies and Lotus have the Kyla Kera, Kera maintenance uranium mine in Malawi that was uh, financed and constructed by Paladin back in the day during the last uranium cycle. It's been in care and maintenance for a while. Lotus have done a really good job in getting it ready for restart. They haven't yet made a final investment decision. And ACAP Resources have got a very large, uh, not particularly advanced or developed deposit in Botswana, which of course is a neighbor to Namibia where Bannerman operates. So what uh, ACAP have got, it was defined to an inferred level all the way back to when I was first in the uranium sector, it probably goes back to 2008, 2009. Um, they did a PEA back in those days, and they've been slowly improving on that through various feasibility work, but it still remains a project with a lot of development work in front of it. So the reason I've given it the winner of the week is it's a classic example of when mergers make sense. You know, for from the perspective of Lotus shareholders, they've got a restart opportunity that's very proximate, but it doesn't have decades of life. Their, their plan at the moment is a 10-year mine life. So they would be looking very soon for opportunities to create that pipeline of uranium so that it makes it easier to attract contracts and easier to get buy-in from the uranium nuclear industry, the buyers. Now, on the other hand, from ACAP's perspective, it's been a long time since they've had management that's been particularly focused on their uranium asset. Uh, they've spent most of their last few years focused on the Wilconi uh, nickel cobalt project in Western Australia, which is a metallurgically challenged um, uh, laterite nickel cobalt project. And they introduced some Chinese investors who had you know, what they claim to be a very interesting metallurgical process from China. Um, they've been moving that forward and their asset in Botswana, we haven't seen a lot of evidence that that's getting much closer to development. 
So from their perspective and from the Botswanan perspective, it's a real positive because they've got a shareholder who's got expertise now, or they're, they're going to have common ownership that will have expertise in the nuclear and uranium industry. They will have patience. You know, it's only 10 years before Kolakera starts to run out of ore. So they've got the time needed to work out what's the best way of updating the technical information at Letlakani. Um, deciding what is the preferred way of developing it, doing all of the things that we did 10 years ago at Bannerman in terms of really understanding, moving that, understanding the ore body, moving it from inferred through to measured and indicated, doing all the metallurgy work that's necessary for a deposit like that to really understand and feel confident about its metallurgy, as well as mine planning and the whole host of advanced feasibility that's needed to get it into production. It's good news. So we're, put, we're putting it down as the, uh, the winner of the week for for sure. Um, I would just pose these questions or these thoughts um, when you sort of see these sort of things, these, these kind of these mergers, you know, they should be kind of mergers of equal as opposed to mergers of desperate people. I'm not saying this is, but I, in terms of when you see things like this, you know, you've got to ha- understand why they're doing it. Sometimes it's just for the sake of news flow. We've seen a lot of that in the last two years where people are doing mergers, acquisitions, JVs, just for the sake of being able to kind of keep front and center because nothing's actually happening on the ground. You've got to try and understand the quality of coming to A merger doesn't immediately signal success. It just says some people have come together and managed to agree, which is hard enough, um, to, to come, come together under some, some terms or other. They've still got a lot of work to do, you know, after the point of merger. And they've, you've kind of got to actually sort of say, do the sum of the parts, et cetera, right? Um, so like, I'm, I'm keen. Keith's got us, Keith's, um, obviously made this happen. It's good news. We've got to sort of see, um, where the, if they can demonstrate value, if they can demonstrate growth, and it's not going to be just an exercise of plowing money into something which, um, is just a another project. Um, so, Wish them well. Um, they needed to do something. It's gone pretty quiet over there. And as you say, maybe this increase, potential increased scale might help them. So, because um, I guess the other bit is, um, and, and you, you talk about this a lot, a lot, which is, come back to that geography thing, which is obviously Malawi is not exactly next door. Um, and, but, but, it, but, but, you know, is good. I used to live in Gaborone myself as a kid. Um, you know, it's a good country, good people. Um, I don't understand the infrastructure, et cetera, but I, I, I guess with a little bit of work, I can try and understand what's going on there. So um, doing business in Malawi versus doing business in Botswana, going to be the same or you get some learnings to be had? What do you uh, reckon? Very different, very, very different countries. Uh, you know, if the, the Botswana and Namibia have got a lot of similarities and they they share a border, they share road infrastructure, there's talk of rail infrastructure, etc. Uh, Malawi and Botswana are different. They're, they're in the same sort of general region, but they're not particularly close. Uh, the challenges are very different. Malawi's got a very high population density, Botswana doesn't. Um, and I think Keith himself is quite open that, you know, we're not going to be shipping concentrate from Botswana to Kalakera, for example. Um, but what it does do is it creates helpful geographic diversification. Um, Botswana is a, you know, most people say with Namibia, Botswana are the two best operating environments in Africa. 
Um, so anyone who might have reservations about Malawi will feel a lot more calmer at a company-wide basis. And at a management slash technical expertise, those skills are very transferable between those two assets. So again, what ACAP has lacked recently is uh, management attention on their uranium assets. That will now come via the team, the very impressive team that they've put together at Lotus. So I think that's where the win is. And of course, you've always got um, generalised synergies between African countries, even though the people in Malawi are quite different to the people in Botswana. Nonetheless, there are some learnings that are significantly transferable between those two countries in the way that you deal with people, the way that your reputation uh, carries through, etc. It's It's got a lot more synergies than going from a Malawi to Mongolia, for example. Oh, don't be, don't be rude about Mongolians. Lovely people. Lovely people. Um, just hard to do business there. Right. Um, We've we got to move on because we've got lots to talk about. Lot, it's, it's like crazy, isn't it? It's always loads to talk about. Um, and I feel there should be a trumpet at this point. That's what we need to introduce to this that show, a trumpet for this one, which is Bungle of the Week. And again, old news, but we're going for it. What are we going to talk about? The big beat up around the release of uh, innocuous tritium water out of Fukushima. So, uh, you know, you get the same old tired voices who are beating it up the anti-nuke crowd. And rather than focus on collectively trying to achieve some of the challenges that nuclear energy has in certain markets with public acceptance, these tired old people decide just to go down the well-worn path of misinformation, which of course is what they're pursuing. Now, you could just yawn and ignore it, but the reason we've highlighted it as a bungle of the week is it does have the potential for some serious ramifications. In the same way that Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth are directly responsible for enormous distress in Japan around Fukushima because they exaggerated the risk and they created a lot of alarm and anxiety that science did not demonstrate as being appropriate. They're now playing into, according to some commentators, uh, Chinese geopolitical goals. They've managed to stir up, for example, the trade union movement in South Korea. And China thinks, well, this is quite good. You know, we've seen a lot of warming of relationships, of international relations between South Korea and Japan. You know, they've got over some of their really difficult issues associated with recent history, 20th century history, the Second World War and so forth. Um, there's been some really important outreach. And now is this an opportunity to sow a bit of discord between these two Western allies? So that is the real cost of what these anti-nuclear campaigners are doing really just for their own purposes. It doesn't help the Japanese people. It doesn't make the slightest, tiniest, weeniest bit of difference to anything in the natural environment, nor any other country that shares a ocean with Japan. Japan's got over it, and yet uh, they still want to bungle their way through with old tired misinformation. So um, once again, they don't really care what blood is on their hands, whether it's climate related progress that they're holding up like they did in Germany, or if it's um, creating additional geopolitical tension that uh, makes life harder for the South Koreans, the Japanese, 
and the Western interests vis-a-vis China. Okay, so to be really clear, the International Atomic uh, Energy Agency says the the um, release of this treated water stored at Fukushima um, is consistent with their safety standards. So science says it's just fine. Yeah? I'd happily bathe in it. I'd happily swim in it. I'd drink a glass of water of this stuff. It is safe. And tritium is a natural uh, chemical anyway. You know, the, the ocean's already got a lot of tritium in it. Uh, you get it from the interaction between sunlight and the ocean. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a nothing burger. A nothing burger. Okay, it, but, but it's kind of worth discussing because, you know, you've seen in social media, you've seen in mainstream press, the fact that politicians just play a game with these sorts of topics. You've got this, you know, I think the, I can't remember, some Sp- Spanish, was it probably the prime minister, leaping out of a private jet, um, getting in a car, and then about, you know, 30 seconds out from the conference, jump on a bike to be seen cycling into the conference. And you're like, oh, come on. And these rows of these jets lined up by, with people who then, you know, stand up on a lectern, stand behind a lectern on a stage and say, climate change is real. You must change your behavior. It's, it's, do you know what I mean? So these sorts of headlines and alarmist headlines. And then the kind of behaviors of politicians, governments, et cetera, need to be questioned. I kind of, I kind of like the fact that kind of held up in, in these kind of social media and, and memes and so forth and say, so, you got to question everything. But in this case, science says it's fine. Let's stop with the alarmist stuff. We've talked about this for the last two years. I think we first talked about this two years ago, didn't we? I think so. Long we did. time. Long time in the making. Okay, well, no, no more. Um, moving on. So I've, I've got a question for you, though. Okay, you ready? You ready for the question? Yeah. And, as, and I'm going, I'm sticking with Africa, but I'm going to Niger now, which is, um, what do you make of uh, CNUC going back into Niger? Uh, so this is an interesting one. So CNUC, which is uh, effectively a subsidiary of the Chinese state-owned nuclear giant CNNC, they've come back to a project in Niger that really didn't go well for them a few years ago. It's been on care and maintenance for some time. Um, the, the view in the industry was, you know, they got their nose bloodied there. They learned a lot. It was their first foray outside of China into uranium mining, and it didn't, didn't go particularly well. And now they're back. So what it really says to me is China, as we all know, has got a voracious appetite for uranium and they will continue to have a voracious appetite. Whether or not they still believe in this particular project isn't the point. The point is they've got unfinished business in one of the top five uranium jurisdictions in the world being Niger, and they're coming back to see if they can restart it. And if they can't restart it, they need to clean it up so that they don't find themselves locking China and its uh, voracious uranium demand out of what will still be a substantial producer of uranium going forward. So I do think it's interesting mainly because it just shows the lengths to which China and its various agencies will have to go into the future uh, to secure the uranium that they're going to need going forward. Um, The geopolitical angle here is interesting as well because of the top five uranium producing jurisdictions in the world, if you run through them, so you start with Kazakhstan. So under Kazakh law, a subsoil use contract for uranium must be issued 51% to 
Gazette and Prom. So the Chinese can't outright own that. They can only be a shareholder and then have a offtake agreement. Then you go next to, let's say Canada's next. So uh, non-Canadian companies can't own more than uh, 50% of a uranium company. Uh, there's only one exception that was ever made, which was for Paladin back in the day. They didn't end up developing. So I think they closed the gate behind them on that. Then you move through to, uh, they're not the third, but Australia, which um, under Foreign Investment Review Board regulations is very unlikely to allow a Chinese entity to control an Australian uranium mine. And then you're left with Namibia and Niger. Um, Namibia is actually the third largest producer of uranium. Niger is the fifth largest producer of uranium. In Namibia, Chinese entities can and do control and own outright uranium uh, mines. So they've bought Rossing off Rio Tinto that we talked about. Uh, they bought and developed the Husab uranium mine. They have a 25% interest in the Lange Heinrich uranium mine. And now there's Niger. So this was the first and, and really only substantial investment from Chinese entities in Niger. They've realized they need to come back to keep that large market open because their opportunity to own outright and control uranium production in the rest of the world is very, very limited. It's interesting, actually. Niger has obviously been a very, very poor uh, country. Um, I, I, I've, again, been, been a country, you know, sat down with some of the ministers there back in the day. Um, and, you know, China China was represented. They were everywhere. And we're sort of seeing a kind of, as I say, resumption of this. But it's not, not just on uranium, but as, you know, um, food, manufacturing, um, real estate, and, and, of course, money. And, of course, there's the there's the pipeline there. Right, oil. There's oil. Um, the problem for them was always, you know, the you know, getting getting the oil to the coast or wherever it needed to go. So China's kind of stepping back in there, and I guess what it does is it makes a big balance sheet available to the country to develop some of these things. But obviously, China's China's view is well, anything that kind of comes out of the ground or grown above the ground, you know, we'd kind of quite like some of that heading our way. Thank you very much. So it's a it's a it's a it's a good investment uh, geopolitically in terms of you know what they've been very good at doing is you know staying apolitical as as it were, um, but making the cash available, albeit in a much more structured way than uh, than days gone by. Just on the uranium though, um, clearly it didn't go well before, and it was it was into a difficult market, admittedly. Were there any issues sort of technically around this, or was it just a kind of price and a, and a marketing issue? From what I understand, it was technical issues. So I haven't been there, so um, I'm only going on what uh, I understand through the industry. But it was technical challenges, and uh, you know CNNC or CNUC, they wouldn't be the first example in the world of a vertical integration where the, the end user of a mineral commodity has found that mining's a bit tougher than they thought it was. So what I don't understand is how much of those challenges are attributable to the technical nature of the ore body and how much of it was the learning curve for CNNC there. Right. Okay. So that, that, that's, something, that's something to look out for, but um, I guess if anyone can, the Chinese can. Very, very good. Certainly, certainly in other metals and, and, and commodities of solving technical issues. Let's see where they get to on this one. Um, and, a, and, a, and a favorite here of, of people who write in and, and tell me what they think of the show. Some of it pleasant, um, which is tweet of the week. Uh, there's a big one actually. They're showing a few cracks, um, appearing in Germany. 
Tell us all about it. Yeah, so this is a tweet from Ralph Fuchs. He's a prominent Greens Party member in Germany, been in the Greens Party since 1982. And it's relevant because this is, as you say, the first cracks appearing in this German Greens bulletproof barrier to logic and good sense when it comes to energy policy. Um, he's asking legitimate questions of the current policy standing. Uh, he, he has a thread that you know we translated into English. Maybe we'll put those in the show notes. But he makes comments like, instead of praying down old certainties, we should reevaluate things, i.e. the role of nuclear power. The head is round so that thinking can change direction. And that's what he puts out there in his tweet. He points to the fact, and from the diagram that you can see on the screen, he points to the fact that Germany's prematurely closing nuclear power plants in the middle of a climate crisis when the rest of the world is going the other way towards extension and new builds. So nothing revelationary in terms of what we understand and what we know, and there's certainly we've got no disagreement with the points that he's making, but it does illustrate that that debate is even wedging its way into the impenetrable minds of the German Greens movement. Comes after Finnish Green Party adopters official policy, the promotion of new build nuclear. It comes after some high uh, profile defections amongst the UK Greens Party because of nuclear policy. It comes on the back of some quite substantial former Greens, former Greenpeace activists who are now very pro-nuclear. There's a dozen organisations which are variously called Greens for Nuclear and, and other names. So that consistency between what is good for the planet and a recognition of nuclear's planetary advantages is starting to even find its way into Germany, and I like that. How, how, how relevant is he? How, how, how much of a, a kind of cue is this for the kind of pro-nuclear um, narrative out there. I mean, in, in terms of his commentary, I get it. Lots of smart people say what he's saying or starting to realise, um, you know, what what he's talking about may actually be the case. And I'm starting to be critical of, of the German government. But what's his, what's his sphere of influence? And, you know, why could this be? Why is this big news? So it, it's not particularly big news for the sector. What, what it does do, on the one hand, is... It helps to amplify the lessons that the rest of the world can learn from Germany's premature anti-science closure of nuclear reactors ahead of fossil fuels and coal in particular, as well as gas. Uh, however, he does have influence in Germany. So interestingly, he's married to a lady called Marilise Beck, who was a very prominent member of the German government, Greens Party member of the German government. Um, until quite recently. They've been um, fairly vocal in lobbying for greater German involvement in supporting Ukraine in the Ukraine war. Uh, you might remember that at the beginning of the conflict, Germany was somewhat dithering about what they should do, notwithstanding that their energy policy probably contributed significantly to Putin's calculus in starting the war. And they've, uh, you know, they've been quite publicly involved there. As a couple, as a power couple, they've gone to Kiev. So it's not only one renegade German Greens Party member, it's, um, you know, either 
they're having some very interesting conversations around the dinner table at home, or it'll be perceived as this power couple now asking legitimate questions about Germany's energy policy. And you can't ignore the geopolitical link between their genuine concern for events in Ukraine and a recognition that perhaps we need, they, we as a civilization, need to ask questions of Germany's energy policy and some of the um, unexpected outcomes of that. Okay. Well, again, it's, it's nice to sort of see this momentum building and more people you know, the penny dropping, as it were, as we say over here. Um, right, we better kind of finish off with something I referenced earlier, which is, you know, in terms of the, the geographies, the jurisdictions. And um, we're going to talk about moonshot, moonshots and fizzers, which we, which we like to do. So is there a moonshot this week or are we all fizzers? Uh, there's definitely a moonshot. Canada is once again making headlines positioning itself to be a genuine nuclear leader, certainly in the Western world. Uh, Canada's been doing a lot with SMRs. You know, they've really been a leader. I, uh, I moderated a panel back at the International Uranium Conference, which was held in Adelaide late last year. And one of the questions that we put to the panellists and even the audience experts in the audience was, well, which country is going to be the first to deploy commercial scale SMRs? And the majority of uh, experts actually said Canada ahead of the US. Um, I think we left China and Russia out of it because they, they've got a different regulatory regime and they've already built SMRs. But ahead of France, ahead of the US, and there's a very good chance that that prediction will come true. Now, what they've done just recently is they've now announced that they're taking the steps towards building the world's largest nuclear power plant um, in Ontario. Bruce Power is looking at uprating from its current scale of 6.2 megawatts, so it's uh, gigawatts, sorry, it's already very large, up to adding potentially another 4.8 gigawatts to make it an 11 watt gigawatt plant, the largest in the world. Now they're doing that with their indigenous Kandu reactors, which is Canadian technology. So it's got a lot of benefits for Canada as an economy. They've obviously got a lot of uranium. They've got conversion facilities through Cameco. Um, so it's a really clever move and it's, it's definitely got the potential to be a moonshot for Canada as a country. Now, of course, you can't look at Canada without comparing what's going on to the very culturally and economically similar nation the great nation of Australia, where I'm recording from at the moment. Um, similar size economy, similar type of people, similar um, predominance of minerals and primary industry. And Australia is the fizzer. If Canada is the moonshot, Australia is absolutely the fizzer because with all of the same opportunities in terms of uranium potential and uranium production and uranium resources, we are doing precisely nothing about it. Oh, actually, we are doing something about it. Our learned prime minister is uh, doing a green energy love-in with, uh, with Schultz from Germany um, just to compare notes on how to do renewable energy and not to do nuclear. So Australia is destined for the FISA category, whilst I'm hoping that Canada propels itself into the moonshot category. 